are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado, our guest today is an affiliate associate professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Washington and the principal data science researcher at Kensai. He's also an advisor on AI to the Ministry of Science and Technology of Maldives and has published over 50 research papers on machine learning and artificial intelligence. His research centers on fairness and equity concerning the role of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Here to work through all of that is our guest, Dr. Mohammed Aurangzeb Ahmad. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Zach. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, wow, first of all. That is a lot um, and a lot to unpack and a lot of super interesting things that it seems like you've got your hands in. So for those of us who have not studied it and only kind of know AI and machine learning and um, all of these sorts of terms thrown around, maybe you could give us just a brief primer as to where your research focuses and what those terms even mean. Like... Um, Artificial intelligence, is is that basically the same as like the computer players in Mario Kart or is it like a totally different ball game or um, what are we talking about when we talk about this stuff? Artificial intelligence and machine learning corresponds to creating uh, computer programs which can reason in general and ideally reason like humans. Um, and so these systems are, this is not something new. Uh, this artificial intelligence has been around for more than 50 years. Uh, but it's just that over the last decade or so, they are becoming part of our everyday life. So if you use, let's say, a uh, a smartphone, so use GPS for direction, so that's being powered by artificial intelligence. Uh, if you ask yeah, your phone, or let's say Siri or even Alexa for anything, that's also powered by artificial intelligence. If you go and buy something online, the recommendations that you get that's also powered by artificial intelligence or machine learning. So basically anything, almost anything computer related, which has an element of uh, intelligence or quote unquote smart thinking associated with it. Uh, so that usually corresponds to artificial intelligence. And within artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning is a subfield which is focused on uh, using data to learn, uh, so to learn new concepts, uh, new models, uh, let's say to find things which are not obvious in the world and to make predictions. Uh, so how do you teach a computer to think like a human? Uh, so thinking like just like a human, so in my opinion, that that's a goal which may still be very far off. Uh, that said, uh, imparting aspects of that or imparting uh, intelligence-like behavior in certain limited domains, uh, that's uh, quite possible. So one of the most, most famous example is um, computers playing chess. So in uh, around 1997, when IBM's uh, 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 computer Deep Blue, so it beat the, the then uh, grandmaster Gary Kasparov. So that's, that's one form of intelligence. 
So that said, the really interesting about thing about that particular program was that it actually did not play chess like in the same way that humans do. What Deep Blue did was that at any given point in time, it would consider all possible combinations of play uh, in the next move, the next moves, uh, so on and so forth. And it would compute the best ones. While in contrast, humans, uh, any grandmaster at maximum would just consider six different moves. So it's intelligence in some sense, but at the same time, it works differently from how humans think. So in your work, you seem to work in a lot of ways in in healthcare, uh, artificial intelligence in healthcare. And that's not something that we hear talked about a lot in the in the, in the media in the public sphere. Um, in 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 what ways is AI being used in healthcare? So there are a number of ways in which artificial intelligence is being applied in healthcare. Uh, so let's say to improve healthcare outcomes, to detect diseases, for allocation of resources. Uh, so just to give you a few examples of work that I've also been involved in. So let's say we have uh, some historical data regarding a health of a patient. Uh, let's say their health history, uh, their uh, frequency of going to a physician or hospital, the reasons that they are going their, let's say, blood tests, so on and so forth. And so based on that, we can build models to, let's say, predict if that person is going to, let's say, um, develop diabetes in the next 15 to 20 years, what is the risk of that person uh, having a heart attack in the next five years? Uh, or we can do even... Uh, more mundane things like, uh, let's say if you get admitted to a hospital and you get discharged, then what is the probability that uh, you will be readmitted again in the next 30 days? Uh, If you're in the hospital, what is the likelihood that, um, um, or how long you are likely to stay in the hospital? So one of of my favorite examples of actually a problem that I worked on is uh, predicting if uh, if uh, if you are waiting in an emergency room and can we predict if you're going to leave or not so this is called left without being seen hmm. so if you have any experience of going to an emergency department in the US uh, you would know that they're famously uh, uh, you have to wait for a long time <laughs> uh, so yeah so the models that i worked on uh, with my colleagues is predicting if somebody is going to uh, going to leave after waiting or not. Uh, so one feed one feed feedback that we got from one of these hospitals is that uh, so the nurse told us that uh, so the for our models so uh, the end user they see a dashboard which tells them is the person at high risk or low risk. Uh, so the nurse told us that uh, she went to this patient and then she told her that um, uh, because she was showing up as a high risk, uh, that uh, it's just going to be a few. So she prioritized her and uh, told her just going to be a few minutes. Mm. Um, uh, so you don't you don't have to wait that long. And then the person said, the patient said, I'm glad that you told me because I was just about thinking of leaving. So in this case, these models, they anticipate even uh, indirectly human intentions. Huh. Uh, 
so you're able to figure out how likely a person is to wait in a waiting room and to be seen or to just leave. And you wouldn't want them to leave these days because if they're in the hospital, there's a chance they're contagious with something awful. Correct. And within that, there are yeah. uh, some additional factors um, that I would say society as a whole, we don't get enough chance to talk about. So, for example, so it's not just enough to have a model which is, say, highly accurate overall, because all models are going to be wrong in some way, uh, because there's no such thing as perfect model being right all the time. Um, so what the additional analysis that we do, uh, especially in my group, is um, look at how well the model is doing across different um, dimensions of, let's say, gender, of race, of ethnicity. So to give you an example of one such hospital that we worked uh, in in the Midwest was that, um, so for this particular problem uh, left without being seen, it was disproportionately people in minorities, so African-Americans who were leaving. Um, um, so the one thing that you could say, well, your model is really accurate. So that's one way to look at it. But the second way is that it's not sufficient to have a model. There are other socioeconomic factors within machine learning um, that you have to look into account. So, so the reason that a lot of these people are leaving is because um, they come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And so people have to go back to work. They cannot get time off from work. Um, hmm. Or let's say in many cases, they are, let's say, a primary caregiver. So they cannot be away uh, from, the, the, uh, from the person that they're giving care to. So you have to th think about and incorporate these external factors in your machine learning model so that, let's say, if you're dealing with, um, uh, let's say, people who are disadvantaged in society, they get prioritized within these machine learning models. It strikes me that a lot of our ethics as humans comes from our, uh, our religion, our, um, our social systems, um, and, and across the world, we have different ethics and we have different ideals and things that we um, hold on to dearly. Um, when it comes to working out things like discrimination in AI and ethics connected to it, how do we work that out? You know, whose ethics gets priority? Who's who's in the room and who's not? And how do you how do you tease this out in a global society where these sorts of machines are making decisions across cultures? Yeah, so this that's an excellent question. So this becomes extremely complicated when you have to think about different stakeholders. Um, so first, if you just think about different uh, cultures and cross-cultural differences, so there's a famous study which was done by a research group at MIT uh, just a couple of years ago. Where they, it's called the Moral Machine Experiment. So they asked uh, people across the world different questions related to a particular scenario where uh, so it's called the trolley trolley problem, which is that uh, let's say. Um, you, uh, let's say you are controlling a liver and on the other side of the, the liver, uh, there's a, there are people uh, in a car or in a trolley. And so you can move it to the left or right on one side, let's say there's an old woman and on the other side, there's a small child. Uh, so there's just enough time to say one versus the other. And so 
and there are different variants of that. Instead of uh, one person, if there's, let's say, three people, or let's say one, there's a criminal, so on and so forth. And what they discovered was that people in different parts of the world uh, answer differently with respect to who they should uh, save. Um, so what they found was two or three clusters. So just to oversimplifying things, um, but it's a good oversimplification. In general, in middle, in uh, Western uh, cultures, uh, people uh, opt to save the child. But in far in uh, far Eastern cultures, uh, especially those influenced by Confucianism, uh, people tend to save uh, the old old person. Um, so you can, so you can, so intuitively speaking, as uh, that's a Westerners or Western educated people. So we may have an intu- we may think that it's a universal human intuition to save the small child, but it turns out that it's actually not. Um, so that's one complication. Uh, that uh, how do we think about these things, which we which we think that are universal and moral intuitions. Uh, sometimes they are not. That is not to deny that there's no such thing as universal moral intuition. Uh, so that's one uh, part of that. The second one is that, uh, so we also have to think about the different stakeholders um, and how do they think about uh, these different outcomes. So in, in the world of COVID, so think about the following. So one problem with uh, COVID is that um, when large number of people get infected, it overwhelms the healthcare system because there are just not enough beds in the ICU. So the real moral dilemma that uh, one has to deal with is that suppose the capacity of a hospital is 100 ICU beds and there are 500 patients who are expected to come. So you have a machine learning model which can predict that in advance. So now how do we prioritize uh, who, which patients we should admit. Uh, so even without machine learning models, the human physician, uh, she has to make a call. Out of these 500 people, we can only admit 100 people because there's just limitation of resources. But one thing that machine learning can help and AI can help is that it can do better risk stratification, which is another way of saying that the probabilities that it can give us would be better in terms of uh, people that we can save. So even if it's an improvement of 5%, uh, maybe we can save seven, eight people more in this particular population. So that that's still mm. still a win. Um, uh, so to to summarize, this is not an, uh, like a straightforward, obvious, uh, obvious problem. <laughs> I mean, you're talking ethics. There's no such thing as a straightforward answer to that. <laughs> I mean, I'm seeing this right now. Our our hospital, our local hospital is past capacity. They've got, if you walk into the ER, I think the wait time is over 12 hours. And then once you get into the ER, they'll probably put you in a bed in a hallway and you'll wait another 12 hours. And I know that I had uh, a member of my church who had double lung transplant recently and all kinds of, all kinds of problems. And he's... Um, his wife was worried that he was dying and he waited all about a day before he was able to get treatment. And then they sent him home far before they should have, but because they had to make room and there were no ICU beds and they needed to keep it moving because they did. Obviously you don't want just a whole bunch of COVID positive people sitting around in the waiting room. So they've got tents outside and it's a big, 
kerfuffle out here in Reading. And I don't know how much of that is human decision and how much of that is uh, being aided by computer systems. I, they don't really tell you that at the front desk. Um, but my, I, I, I hear a lot of anger and rage from the people who are negatively impacted by this, like, like this woman whose husband has been through this. And I wonder what the difference would be in terms of the way that they're experiencing this trauma and the way they're able to process it and um, the way they're able to form their blame to help them feel better if it were a human decision from like the nurses at the desk who are doing triage versus a an automated system if if one would give them more comfort than the other to know that they could just blame a cold and heartless machine or if there was a human that they could blame which one of those would sit better with a a suffering human consciousness which which would you think um, so I would actually dissect this question across a third dimension. So which is that, um, so we made a lot of people t tend to think that, so data, so information about the world, so it's neutral algorithms are neutral, computer programs are neutral, AI and machine learning is neutral. While in reality, that's almost never the case. So any data which is related to or touches the human world, it's biased. Um, and so even machine decision make making has and is informed by human decision making. So I'll, I'll illustrate that with is a very extreme real world example. Uh, so few and this even predates the use of machine learning. Uh, so in the U.S., uh, ever since the early '80s, in some jurisdictions. Um, when uh, judges are handing out uh, sentences, um, so they get an additional uh, data point, additional input from uh, these, what, what are known as scoring models, which uh, predict the, let's say, the, the possibility of uh, receivitism. So this particular uh, person uh, recommitting a crime. Uh, so for the longest time, it's been used so almost 40 years now. So around five or six years ago, um, so there's this one, this organization called ProPublica. So they got hold of um, these decisions, these recommendations from this model in a county in Florida, and they audited th these models. So what they discovered was, and so these are, uh, let's, these are algorithms, so they are supposed to be neutral. But what they discovered was that these models, they were predominantly recommending longer and harsher sentences for African-Americans uh, versus everyone else, except uh, Native Americans. Uh, also recommending harsher sentences for Native Americans. And not just that, but uh, these models were, all these computer models, they were also wrong more often for African-Americans as compared to, let's say, white. So by, by that, what we mean is that, so, for African-Americans, these models were saying that, oh, this person is high risk, um, but and they're going to re-offend. Uh, but in reality, that more than half of the time, that was not true, and also vice versa. Um, so then the question comes then, well, these are supposed to be data-driven models. So how is it that they are biased? 
So it turns out that um, for any algorithm, for any machine learning model or AI model, if you give it biased data, then you'll get a biased model. So what, by biased data, what we mean by that is that for this, because for this particular county, historically speaking, the judges, they were biased against African-Americans. So for the same exact crime, the African-Americans were giving lower sentences. So this model, although race was not an explicit factor, uh, it was still using the past data to build a biased model to make biased recommendations. And I mean, this is an extreme example, but even in healthcare, we do see examples um, examples of the sort where, uh, where, uh, where these uh, models make biased decisions. And even in like pre-machine learning and AI days, and to give you another really extreme example, there is a famous study which was actually sponsored by NHS in early 1980s on um, studying the effect of uh, uh, breast cancer and um, and I, I believe also uterine cancer. So enrolled more than a thousand people. None of them were women. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, historically, up until I mean, it's still there, but things have improved. But historically. Even in the, the the medical field, there was a bias against enrolling women, uh, even for things which are exclusive to women, because unfortunately, um, these researchers who were predominantly men, they, and I'm actually quoting from a research paper, and I hate to use this word, that they basically thought that uh, women are men with pesky hormones, almost exact verbatim quote. Mm. Uh, so that biased these results um, against women uh, and also retarded the growth of medical science. Things things have improved. I would say we are still not there. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very old problem that the people who have been dealing with it have been telling us is a thing for a very, very long time and are not at all surprised that this is what the data pans out. And are... so on, on that line, I was peeking through your Twitter account, as I do. And uh, I noticed you've retweeted something from a friend of mine, uh, Rachel Thomas, who's a mathematician and ethicist. Uh, she had written, fairness is not justice. And that phrase really stood out to me. And I w it seems connected to this conversation. Can you unpack a little bit about what that means in terms of maybe creating algorithms that actually work for people and aren't and, and and the difference between what fairness and justice would look like. So in my mind, what that means is that um, so just creating models, machine learning models, which are fair. So that's not sufficient. Uh, so I come from a computer science background. And uh, so in my domain, so people can often confuse the model for the real world. Uh, so there's this possibility that and I've, se I've seen this to some extent that uh, so once you create a model which is fair, uh, let's say across a particular definition of fairness across a particular dimension, then there's tendency to think that your work is done. While in the real world, and especially within the context of healthcare, uh, having fair models, that's not sufficient. Uh, so when we say fair models, which but let's using a particular definition of fairness that let's say it in terms of how it treats let's say african american populations versus white versus asian populations uh, so there are different populations that are treated uh, fairly equally 
how well the model does on these different populations, it's, it's the same or almost the same. But just having those models, that's not sufficient because um, at the end of the day, care is not given by machines. The care is given by humans. And so mm. humans may have unbiased, have unconscious bias. I mean, all of us are biased in one way or the other. We may or may not recognize it. So also taking care of that uh, hidden bias, uh, putting relevant practices into place. Um, so the so a sister uh, pro example of the, the left without seeing, being, seeing problem that I gave earlier is another problem called no-show prediction. So which is the problem that, um, so you build a machine learning model to predict if somebody is going to show up um, for an appointment or not. And so we have also worked on this and deployed these models in the Midwest. And what we have observed over there is that that also predominantly affects uh, minorities, African-Americans, Hispanic populations. And the reason they're also the same that uh, a lot of these people um, come from working class backgrounds, so it's not possible for them to take time off, uh, especially during during the weekdays. Uh, so yeah. people do not show up. And also public transportation in the US is famously bad uh, outside of New York. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so one, yeah, so one, so if you talk about fair models, then creating models, which, you know, I can identify these different factors, why people are not showing up, um, across different, uh, populations and subpopulations. So that's one part of the work now for the justice part in my mind comes where, well, after you have built the machine learning models, then you know these, let's say, these data scientists, machine learning experts, uh, stakeholders from these communities, uh, let's say, community organizers, and the hospital staff, uh, and even even the let's say the, the local government, they come together and then they they think about well, how do we solve this particular problem? And one way to do that is it's, now that comes outside of machine learning, which is that well, one problem is that a lot of these people do not have transportation or not enough transportation in time. So either you provide that or instead of they going to the hospital, let's say the hospital goes to them, uh, let's say in the form of mobile mobile clinics. Um, so that's in my mind, that's thinking about uh, mitigating these injustices uh, in a more holistic problem and not just in terms of, well, we have a model and it has this um, particular accuracy, 90%, uh, and our work is done. Well, that's, in my mind, that's where your work actually starts. Because at the end of the day, in, at least in the context of healthcare, your goal is to improve uh, healthcare and not, um, you know, creating a machine learning model which 95% accurate. Hmm. So a lot of your work, it seems, revolves around justice and fairness and equity and um, ethics. Um, so I have to ask, where, does your uh, religious tradition, belief system, upbringing, faith, spirituality, however it is that you define it, does that inform this work at all? Or is it a totally separate thing? Or does it not exist? I don't want to assume that you are a particularly religious person, because um, I know there are a lot of folks in the fellowship who aren't. Uh, yeah, so I would say that my 
background does inform these uh, different factors. Uh, so many ethical dilemmas that I see within the context of machine learning, so they have anti antecedents, um, let's say in the Western philosophical tradition, also in the Islamic uh, tradition, in the Confucian tradition. So these are the three main traditions I would say that I'm most familiar with. Um, and so the, the, the trolley problem that I described earlier, so as within the context of secular philosophy, so it's been discussed ever since the 1950s, uh, but we do see that um, in Islamic philosophy, there are versions of this going back as far back as the 13th century. Uh, so in my so that helps me think about uh, these different pr uh, problems that let's say how have uh, let's say Muslim thinkers and philosophers talked about ethical dilemmas in the past, and I would say not just Muslim thinkers, um, but also um, like Western and even Christian thinkers. Um, uh, so, for example, after I uh, finished my uh, PhD in computer science, so I spent a year at a Christian seminary studying Christian uh, theology. And, and my motivation for that was that to get an insider's perspective on a religious tradition, which was different from my own, um, <laughs> and think about how, um, let's say, religious, moral, and ethical reasoning is done outside of an Islamic context, out of a outside of a secular context text from an inside out just to have this cross-cultural understanding so I, th I think so i would say that these different things um inform uh inform how i i think about these moral and ethical problems and the other at least in my mind one thing that it helps me is that um this this tendency to uh it that helps me to refrain from this tendency to generalize from my own background, from my own experiences. I got to say, the idea of of going, of spending a year in a Christian seminary fascinates me. That, like, I'm, I think of myself as the kind of person who is works really hard to understand other people's um, moral and religious and mental frameworks, but I don't know if I would commit myself to going to a seminary outside of my tradition to get some insider knowledge. What, um, what, what do you think brought you into that place to, to take a step that big? Uh, so actually, I, I can point to the exact moment when I thought about that. Uh, so it was actually my last year in undergrad. Um, so I did my undergrad from Rochester Institute of Technology in upstate New York. And um, so at our lo local mosque, uh, we had a guest speaker. He was the, uh, the I believe, the director of the uh, Islamic studies at the Catholic Theological Seminary in Chicago, uh, Scott Alexander. I believe he's still there. Uh, I've only met him twice in my life. Um, so he gave a talk at the mosque, uh, and the talk was are actually around Islamic ethics. Uh, so just, so just, just visualize this. So here you have a Christian, in this case, a Catholic uh, pastor in a traditional Catholic religious garb, uh, standing at a podium at a mosque, giving a lecture on Islamic ethics. But the his mannerisms and the way that he was talking about Islamic uh, ethics and its intricacies, you if he was not wearing that particular dress, 
then nowhere in the world anybody would have guessed that he's this person is actually a catholic christian uh he could for all practical purposes he could have been giving like a friday sermon to a muslim audience as an imam uh, mm. So just his enthusiasm uh, that that was, uh, let's say, infectious. Uh, and so during the Q&A, somebody asked him this question that, uh, well, by your experience, you are obviously a, a Christian pastor. Then how can then how do you, how do you talk about the Islamic tradition in such positive and even an in an in, in, in an internalized manner? And Scott's answer was that you cannot really understand another people's perspective without under, understanding how they understand themselves. Huh. You can't understand them until you understand how they understand themselves. Correct. That's deep. Yeah, so that was my motivation. Uh, so he gave another talk at a church, so I went there. Um, and then after that, so after undergrad, I I went I moved to Minnesota, so I did master's, PhD. But this was always in my mind that you know whenever I had time, I would pursue this. Um, so after graduation, I I was working full time, but I took this up. Uh, did this for a year. Uh, my father passed away after that, and after, um, so when my father passed away, I had to stop this. Uh, but it wasn't. It's still an interesting year. I would imagine so. I'm. Uh... I've been hearing this a lot recently from the people I've been talking to, that it seems that the uh, the Jewish folks that I talk to who have been through their seminaries, most of them have had to have classes on Christianity, how to talk to Christians and what Christians believe. And a lot of the Muslim folks I've talked to have talked about similar things of of spending time to understand Christians. And I know very few Christians who have taken the time to understand other people's religious frameworks and their, their spirituality. And I, I imagine there's a, there's a dash of colonialism in there and some hint of, of being in the majority in, in, a, in the West and therefore feeling like being Christian is default and everyone else has to come to to me and I, I don't want to go to them. But I have found I have found that talking with people and learning from people from the depths of their spirituality has made me a better Christian. That uh, I, I think spending time with like uh, hearing hearing Rachel on the podcast talk about Judaism has helped me to understand Jesus better, which I, I think I've learned more about how to read the Bible from Jews than from Christians, <laughs> which, I mean, they wrote it, so they, they should know a bit about it. Um, and I, th I think that the, the move into this technological world where we're all connected and constantly connected at high speed and each other's stories are being told and heard and are just so accessible is creating a world in which Christians don't have to feel that way. Like they don't quite feel people of my age and younger that they are the default anymore. And there's this beautiful mixing and blending. And I think people are getting better. Um, obviously there's a vitriolic response to that with, you know, white Christian nationalism and whatnot. That's in its frightening death throes, but I feel fairly optimistic about technology bringing us together 
instead of tearing us apart. What is it about the the future of technology and maybe specifically in the technology that you work in that's getting you excited? Like what five years from now are you like, oh, this is going to be really great? So in terms of being optimistic or pessimistic, I would say my my uh, perspective is more of middle of the road, which is the more things change, the more they remain the same. <laughs> Very wise. Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, human nature has been the same for the last 200,000 years or so. Um, we, we just have better tools that we are working with. Uh, so that said, uh, if I look at the history of the world uh, for the last, let's say, 2,500 years or so, what's been what some academics call the the post uh, or the 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 post axial age, so the time of the great prophets and the new the new uh, philosophies and religions like Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism arose around that time. So I do see this pattern of globalization and uh, backlashes against globalization. So in my mind, globalization is not a new phenomenon. It has been going on since since then. Um, hmm. Ever since the large, num- ever since a lot people, large number of people across different cultures have been coming together. Um, what's been going on more recently, I would say, is um, just the amount of interconnectedness has been vastly increased, uh, which is having both positive and negative effects. So people are clinging to, uh, uh, let's say, extreme versions of uh, uh, certain ideologies, whether it's religion, whether it's nationalism, whether it's uh, their ethnicity or race. And it's not, I would say, a US-centric phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. We found that we find that across the whole globe. So I, I don't see that disappearing. Uh, the other effect, which is that more interconnectedness, uh, people coming together, um, so I, I, that, that is a good, that is also a good sign in the end who would win out or, um, I would say maybe in the long run, I'm more optimistic, but, um, the trends that we are seeing in terms of polarization, I think they will continue. It will become more extreme. And one thing that we tend to forget while reading the history of the printing press is that, so it's often, even in academia, it's often presented at, or oh, this great explosion of literacy and communication. Well, that's true, but we tend to forget that Gutenberg's press was also responsible for fostering sectarianism um, in medieval Europe because it allowed like-minded people to congregate uh, together and become more extreme in their views and just ignore the other party. Uh, that, if you think about it, that sounds very much like the internet uh, right now. Yeah, it's a lot of things. It does. <laughs> uh, so, of, of course, the Bible was the most uh, wide and still is the most widely printed book uh, as a result of uh, Gutenberg. But associated with that was there. If you look at the number two, number three, and the other uh, books which are mostly wide printed, so two trends that we see. Uh, so one is uh, erotic works. Uh, and then the second one is uh, very sectarian uh, works. So again, hmm. uh, parallel to the spread of pornography on the internet. And also, instead of religious sectarianism, we have um, nationalism and 
ethnic divides. Uh, so, I mean, the, the battle between the internet and the printing press is just remarkable. So that said, after some time, things became better or uh, let's say we had a better equilibrium. So I do foresee that happening in terms of... So we just kind of learned how to work through it with the printing press? Yes, but then if you look at what else was going on in the Europe at that time in terms of conflicts, that that just makes me shudder. The other thing is in terms of uh, things that I foresee, uh, so let let me first talk about uh, pessimistic trends, uh, is that, uh, so it's been estimated that in the next five years, by 2025, it's possible that 90% of all the videos on the internet will be fake. What? Yes, so it'll be, it'll be content gener- <laughs> generated by AI and machine learning. But to, to, um, wow, so, okay, that's very high. I did not expect a number that so, high. Yeah, so, so just imagine this weird scenario. So one day you log on the internet and then, or let's say you start getting text messages from your friend and then saying, where they're seeing a video of uh, Zach um, interviewing and condoning uh, neo-Nazis. And you say to yourself, well, that never happened. Well, it just turns out that somebody has put this out uh, as a as a joke or something right. worse. A deep fake and Correct. all that. So how do we navigate that? Uh, I am not sure how we're going to do that. I mean, there's... Researchers, people that I know um, who are working on creating models which can identify whether it's fake or not, but then for people who are going to be who are going to believe in these things, well, no amount of evidence would be sufficient because well, I'm seeing a video. Um, so that's a worrying trend, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. On the more positive sides, I do see that machine learning and AI. Um, Assuming that there's even if there's zero progress on the technical side, um, there's still a large number of uh, applications where AI and machine learning has not been applied in healthcare and other domains that um, I do see tremendous amount of progress which can be made uh, to uplift um, uh, to improve the quality of life uh, for people. Um, so that, that possibility is uh, definitely there. Um, so hopefully maybe the world in 30, 40 years' time would be a much better place. But before we get there, I, I foresee that <laughs> we would have to go through this period of upheaval. Hmm. <laughs> I, it's striking to me that we create a technology and we see an uptick in sex and violence. Because, like, is that not just the most chimpanzee way of thinking that (laughs) we get a new toy and this is what we do with it because deep down inside we're still just really fancy apes Uh, (laughs) i'm so glad you told me this um it's also i mean it's worth noting that the iphone is only 13 years old so we think about these things in the internet age as if we've been here for a while but we're still figuring out the ethics as we go right and... right and i still remember like the original promise of the internet and you know the early days i'm talking about at least given my age like the the mid 90s to early 2000s uh, it was all about you know connect, connecting people and optimism and knowledge getting knowledge Gosh. yeah 
listeners at home, go on YouTube and look up some early AOL commercials. They are just spectacularly optimistic about like, well, I can buy tickets for the game right here. And they're like, what? You can do that without calling? This is amazing. I can get all my schoolwork done right now. Which is going to make our lives so much better. I think what one thing that will help um, the society as a whole, and I would say globally, all societies as a whole, is if we actually uh, if we actually learn from the Amish. Hmm. So the Amish, uh, so they are usually presented as people who are anti-technology, who are Luddites. Uh, that's actually not correct. The Amish are very conscious with respect to which technology they're going to use. So any technology which, let's say, reduces social cohesion, um, uh, negatively affects friendship ties and family ties. So those technologies are not adopted. So if we, so instead of thinking about all technology as a net positive good, if we start thinking about the positive and negatives and make conscious choice or at the very very minimum, um, start incorporating uh, uh, these design choices in our software in the design of uh, technological artifacts. So to give you an example, so think about the social media. Uh, so like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, they're optimized uh, to maximize the amount of time that a user spends on these platforms. So without taking into account the larger societal ramifications. So instead of optimizing for that, if we actually optimize for uh, other aspects of interpersonal relationships, how is that affecting people's mental health? Um, that would be ideal. But, it, but at the same time, you also have to be realistic because at the end of the day, these organizations are for-profit organizations, so they have to optimize for revenue as well. So the cha- the societal challenge in my mind is how do we find a balance between these two? Uh, so I think that's going to be a big question um, which we will have to address uh, for the next hmm. two, two or three decades. Hmm. Hopefully we're able to continually address them um, as new technologies appear and we're not always just playing catch up Um, but luckily we've got brilliant people like you out on the front lines of trying to work these problems out in real time Um, so with that um, as we near the end i want to ask you the question that i've asked every fellow so far Um, and that is what is what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world um, so one thing that I do wish uh, that everybody knew was how uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence is already affecting people's lives, uh, already affecting lives of billions of people, how these uh, socio-technological systems are nudging us towards certain behaviors, uh, making us, let's say, spend time in a certain manner, um, and this is not science fiction. This is not something which will happen 10, 15 years in the future. This is something which is already happening. Our decisions are being informed uh, by algorithms. 
So you are already living in a world which is being run by algorithms. And the other thing, related thing is that if you look at, take a longer view of history, then we are actually at the beginning of this era of algorithms. Uh, and we will be much more integrated in the socio-technological system 10, 15, 20, or 50 years from now. Uh, so this is the time for us as citizens uh, to get informed and to make decisions. Uh, uh, so, and you don't have to be technical to do that. Um, because once things become part of the infrastructure, it, it's just extremely difficult to change these things. Hmm. Well, that's something to think about. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you for taking the time to come and talk with me. And it has been a pleasure, Mohammed. And thank you for the work that you're doing as well. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure to talk to you. 